Welcome to the Chains That Bind Us. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that today I'm recording on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. This land was stolen and was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past and present and acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. I'm Nikki Wilde, I go by she, her, and I'm the host of the Chains That Bind Us. This is a podcast which interviews people from various Sydney and Australian-based organizations struggling to create a better world. This podcast aims to explore, not debate, the various perspectives of the left organizations to strengthen our ability to work together. I am joined in the studio by Charlie, co-producer of this podcast, and today our guest is Skip from the Sydney branch of the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the IWW. Skip, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Skip, uh, he, him. I'm calling in today from Baramadigal country of the Darug Nations. Hey, everyone. Hey, hey. And um, I guess we should let Charlie just say hi. Or are you just going to be silent, Bob? Yeah, silent Bob, yes. Okay. All right. So would you also like to tell us a bit more about your involvement with the IWW? You're a delegate, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I'm a delegate for the Sydney branch, Sydney uh, general members branch of the IWW. So a lot of my involvement there is uh, with the signing up of new delegates, uh, introducing people. I've kind of gotten myself into a bit of a whip role as well. So, yeah, that's generally uh, all the bits and pieces I do, um, encouraging uh, workplace organisation everywhere. Awesome. So we'll talk some more about the IWW um, in a bit, but we're going to first have a chat about you and how you've gotten here. So, for example, let's start with, you know, what were your earliest political influences? Um, like, Did your parents have much of an influence on you as a child? Yes, yeah, very much so. Though my parents were co-owners of a small business, I had a rather petite bourgeois upbringing. My dad was like a closet left com trot sort of type. And my mum is a, she has got like Maoist leanings. So I kind of had like left wing sympathetic influences as I grew up. I was also a bit of like a nerd, very, very much on the ASD. My father actually had a copy of the first volume of Capital. And I read that when I was 14 slash 15. Very dry read. I don't recommend anyone do it unless they like economics papers. <laughs> um, yeah. did you, what did you get um, from reading Capital back then? Did it have any influence on you? First off, what did I get from it? A headache. And secondly, I kind of got an idea of how economics work. I got my first job earlier when I was 14. And... It was interesting kind of like seeing the dynamics that I felt in my workplace get like laid out on paper in very, 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 very drawn out metaphors about linen. And yeah, uh, so I would say it was kind of like the first domino before I ended up like moving out of my hometown and getting involved in some anarchist circles while I was studying. What, um, just to go back a bit, what was, what was your first job um, that you sort of saw this economic you know, theory and structure coming out of when you, after reading Capital? Well, actually, it's a very stark one. I was a fry cook for McDonald's. For Macca's, that's like most of us, yep. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Oh, fucking, I, was, I was a high school student, like what? 
But yeah, it was very clear that the uh, like the shit pickers behind like the counters and the grills and the deep fry vats were not proportionally beneficiaries to the uh, multi-billion multinational behemoth of a corporation that is McDonald's. So I was put in a very uh, interesting situation where it immediately made sense. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a very good example. Um, so how long did you do that job? Like, what was your next job after that? My next job after that was an assistant in nursing at a nursing home. Yeah. So I did it. I did a um, while I was studying in high school. I also did a certificate three in nursing, and so for the first year of my tertiary study, which I did a double degree in nursing and paramedicine with a minor's in biomedical sciences. I was working in a nursing home until I ended up working as an EMT for a private ambulance company after that. So with the, um, with the EMT working for a private company, what, um, what made you move on from that role? Was there a reason or was it just that um, like working for a private company versus working in a public service? Or It was a couple of things. One was simply location. Where I work now opened up a lot more opportunities than I had in a private ambulance company. Secondly, there was a very strange dynamics within that service. It went a lot by contract work, but you still saw how there was like a uh, worrying dynamic between all the people hired by this business and the owner of this business. You've heard the term like um, companies are like little dictatorships. Well, this one like kind of wanted to make that as loud and clear as possible. So yeah, it wasn't my sort of cup of tea. It was also not the greatest structured business on the planet. And uh, there was other opportunities somewhere else. So I decided to ditch that rather, rather well. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, it was not exactly one that protected its workers, not only like directly for conditions, but in terms of like uh, legal liability. They mm. put people in harm's way. This, this sort of like, and this is in ter- again, in terms of legal culpability, this person knew they were putting in structures for this, but structures were in place that they would never really be directly culpable. Thanks for fleshing that one out. So during that role as the EMT for the private company, did um, you know, you painted a <laughs> pretty classic capitalist um, picture there. Did, um, did the workers that you were around do anything to sort of fight back? Unfortunately, not. Because many of them were students and a couple of them were international ones at that. And again, it was very contracty work. We talk about the casualization of like the workplaces. This one kind of starts and ends at being entirely casualized. No, there wasn't much structures to organize around. And it was kind of really sad. And also the way that ambulance services works. uh, One EMT would often be isolated from much of the rest of the crew. So it would be very difficult for that organization to occur. It, it, was, it was a very difficult time. Interestingly enough, as much as I don't exactly have the highest regards for them, the SDA had a higher saturation within that Macca's kitchen than, say, the Paramedics Association had within that service. Yeah, yeah. So who's the SDA? Would you like to explain that? Yeah, yeah, the SDA, they're, a, um, they're the, oh, what, what does it stand for? They're the Shop Distributed Event Allied Employees Association. Where Macca's workers might unionize too, correct? Yeah, yes. But they're notoriously not very union-esque in how they organize. 
one way I've heard it described is the friendly RHR. So not super impressed with how they were, but hey, they organize better than some other workplaces. There's degrees of bad, if I, if I can say that. Yeah, I mean, that's just the reality we live in, I guess, hey. So we've talked about sort of the work background, um, but I just wanted to sort of go back to um, a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, you know, whether what kind of schools you went to as well. So in terms of schools, again, I had a rather comfortable, it's not like it's perfect, but yeah, rather comfortable petite bourgeois upbringing. Both the primary and secondary education that I had was in the Catholic education sector. Very ties and blazes about it. Though the joke in my hometown was that it wasn't any fancier, really. It was just better at hiding it to pregnant students. So take that as you will. Um, Yeah. As for the town as a whole, it was a town of past industries, I think is a good way to say it. It had a small arms factory. It had a lot of coal mining. This This was in New South Wales and Australia where we're recording from, though, yeah? Yes. Yeah. 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 It had steelworks, textiles, you name it. It even had uh, several grocer and retail cooperatives, and there was a lot of unionization, as you could imagine. At the first like uh, actual work action I saw, I came and stood in solidarity with a picket line outside a coal mine, and that was when I was around 16. So the idea of workers' organization and helping each other out for like a larger cause was kind of baked into that town. In fact, right now, I, I'm still with a credit union that is based in my hometown. Awesome. I actually, leading on from that, like going and standing in that picket line when you were 16, did that sort of have an influence on, you know, you building into sort of doing more organizing and activism work as well? It certainly didn't give me the most charitable view of, of law enforcement. I'll give you that much. But yes, the idea that these people had been struggling in dangerous conditions. And I mean, like, you're hundreds of metres underground. Yeah, there's some pretty nasty conditions down there. So the idea that if they all stood together, they could get safer conditions, they could get more secure work and what have you. All for those who were getting laid off, they'd get a longer lasting benefit after that uh, mine had closed down. And after all, it was their hard work that made the, the billions of dollars that uh, get swept into this federation that make that possible. Do you know how pervasive coal lobby is? Those miners are the only reason why this coal lobby can be so powerful. So when these people kind of reminded their employers of their power, it kind of demonstrated to me, well, this is kind of like across the board. And I saw it at home because, again, my parents uh, were business owners and I saw that they were reliant upon their employees and obviously that uh, my parents firm would not have been profitable if like everyone got a uh, proportional amount of the value they put into that business so yeah I was inspired a lot by my hometown I think you mentioned you standing on that picket line um you got to uh, have a bit of an interesting experience with the with the cops do you want to share a bit more about that I won't disclose too much about myself, I suppose. Let's just say that uh, things got physical even with me. <laughs> and oh, I was 16, I, that's it. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, 16s a tender age, but when you're wearing a bandana around your face, whatever, the, uh, I was I was 180-something centimetres even back then. 
Oh, you so, look yeah. like an adult. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, not the most charitable view of law enforcement. They didn't show any of those workers much mercy. And I suppose mercy was not shown uh, back either. What sort of a role were the cops playing in this situation? Yeah. Essentially, what this uh, picket line was, was like the mine had to go on after all. Um, energy security is really important. We need to keep those coal burnt turbines burning. Those people at the picket were stopping non-unionized workers from also entering the mine. This meant that the company was losing a lot of money. And as you could imagine, stopping production of a mine for 24 hours or 48 hours or 36 hours, or however that could have gone on for, could have been devastating to the bottom line. And so that being their property, the police were called in to essentially break up that picket line, have the scabs roll in and keep work going. Yeah, okay, I gotcha. Constantly being used um, by the um, ruling class to suppress us all, hey. All right, so moving away from sort of the formative stuff, if you could explain maybe what your, where your political, um, where you stand politically now, what your sort of political philosophy, what you would call yourself, maybe how you got there from reading Capital at 13 and 14. Yeah, so I would describe myself loosely as a syndicalist, leaning further towards anarcho-syndicalist than anything else, I think. So essentially comes from syndicate, which is like French for just like union. The idea is that worker organisation is where the strength for anti-capitalist action should be the real focus. And I absolutely agree with that. But even if it's within capitalism, obviously workplace organisation is absolutely vital. It tracks very, very cleanly the rate of unionization within an industry and the inverse correlation for our wage growth. That is, wages drop as unionization drops. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense. In terms of theory, a a, a bit of a nerd, I have read work from Proudhon, uh, Bakunin, Kropotkin, Chomsky. In fact, I uh, like to joke that Much of the left likes to give validity on how many dead white men that they can quote. But I think a lot of my final positions kind of came from just directly being in the workplace and seeing like examples from history. If I was to use like a really, really, really big one, dual power in the provisional republic after Tsardom was the other power were the local uh, governances of the worker Soviets. So those were worker councils that were organised within their industries that were taking over the local governance. So, yeah, I think that sort of thing is uh, very strong. It's kind of where I like to um, concentrate a lot of my practice. One way I like to describe it is that what a union is, it's when workers uh, coordinate so they can collectively better the grounds upon which that the labourer can negotiate the terms of their exploitation. And I hope that this goes on until those workers then dictate those terms. Supposedly. I guess that's a good lead into talking about the IWW. So what attracted you to getting involved with the IWW? And then could you also explain what the IWW is and sort of how, at least locally, how it got started? So yeah, the IWW is this If we go back to like syndicalist history, there was sort of like this conversation between industrial unionism and general unionism. 
that is workers organizing versus industries organizing. Most of our unions now are industrial unions, like the really big ones. Maritime Workers Union, for example, they are wharfies, so it's within that industry. While general unionism is like a larger thing where workers across different skill sets collectively as a class negotiate their conditions. The IWW was this sort of combination of the two. They started in Chicago in 1905 and they've kind of developed like a sort of synthesis of these two. The primary thing though is that they're a revolutionary union, not to simply be content with negotiations as are, that they do want to push so that those workers do dictate those terms, as is their right to, because the only reasons why the machines of labour are productive is because of the labourers who work at them. Yeah, definitely. And so is that why you decided to get involved with the um, Sydney IWW branch? Yeah, absolutely. After I moved to the city from more rural, far-flung places, and after a couple of years getting settled into the new environment, I suppose, yeah, I decided to get more stuck in. And when I found out that there was a general membership branch of the IWW within the city, I decided to join on. Yeah, I felt compelled to kind of counter what I assess as a sad state of Australian organised labour right now especially post the Accord and within the ACTU. And I think the fruits give the merit for what these efforts are. We are having falling unionisation rates, less actions and less present unions as well. Even with some of the largest and most organised unions, you still have people in the workplace saying, but what does the union do for me? That's very uh, symptomatic of a larger issue. And I think the attitudes and the values of the IWW are something that counter this rot that's happening in organised labour here in Australia. That's a really good way of putting it. Thank you. Um, We might just pause there for a quick break. And we're back. So we were just talking about the history of the um, IWW. Um, Do you want to tell us a bit about what the IWW branch in Sydney is like today? So, yeah, the IWW branch in Sydney today, it's gone through actually quite a few waves of tribulations. Right now, it's becoming pretty active, especially for its size. We're not, like, massive. It's not a century ago anymore. But, yeah, we're a lot more active than I say we were before the pandemic. Something about um, the ruling class benefiting a lot more from a worldwide catastrophe than anyone else uh, kind of spurs people to action. But yeah, as I'm aware right now, there's quite a few members who are in different unions really doing some good work, uh, mobilising the peoples in there. We've also got the branch and actually the members in the region as a whole trying to revive Direct Action, which historically was a IWW publication. Although I've come to learn that some people do remind me that in the 70s and 80s, certain Trotskyist groups also took up that name. So I'm glad we're making the distinction again. (laughs) So yeah, there's quite a bit going on. There was an IWW contingent in voting at the uh, Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Annual Conference or General Meeting. I forget. Annual General Meeting? I think it's something like that. So yeah, they do cooperate with a, a couple of other groups such as PIP. There's a few members within Black Flag as well. We're doing quite a bit of diverse work right now. Is there any other um, particular work that the Wobblies are getting up to at the moment? Um, at the moment, I heard maybe uh, there are some podcasts on the um, up and coming. 
Well, there are some podcasts. There's a couple of them who are featured in a podcast called What's That Skip, which is a uh, very conversational podcast that discuss a range of different topics and just like talk about them, which is pretty fun to listen to. Yeah, awesome. I um, I certainly enjoyed having listened to the first episode, which isn't even on the air yet. So well done. So I guess the next thing from there is what sort of industries are comrades participating in and helping to organize within at the moment? So there's a couple going. I think the kind of crown jewel in the Australasian area was our outgoing regional secretary was a co-founder of RAFWU. That's the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, who um, recently did an action, actually at Better Red Than Bed, which was pretty damn awesome. Yeah. Uh, we've got a couple of members who are working within the United Workers Union, who were formerly known as the Miscellaneous Workers. Very good work happening within that union as well. We did have some older members who were within the RBTU, and we also have some pretty prominent members within the Nurses and Midwives Association as well. Yeah, and it's been it's been really awesome seeing the public sector unions sort of kicking up a, quite a bit of a of a fight at the moment um, and mobilizing quite a, a number of people. So it's a it's definitely a good time. And as you said, you know, it takes a takes a global disaster crisis really. Hey, I guess the other thing is I know that the Wobblies do show up um, to support different campaigns and rallies. Um, what sort of events have the Wobblies been present at recently? Not so much events, but like what campaigns have the Wobblies been supporting? Yeah, so there was quite a few. It used to be regular for Food Not Bombs. I'm not quite sure how active that is now, but Food Not Bombs was a pretty awesome project that uh, quite a few Wobblies were participating in. It wouldn't have been a week ago where we had the Trans Day of Visibility, so we were attending there. We're involved with groups that exist in that space as well. Community Action for Rainbow Rights, uh, Pride and Protest, that lot. That morning, actually, we were also helping out at a um, barbecue that was drawing attention to uh, social housing development. That is essentially they want to privatise uh, social housing, or at least it partially. But at any rate, it will be to the benefit of property developers and no one else. Essentially, what will be happening with coordination between the state and local governments is people losing their homes for the profits of property developers, which sucks. So there is, I think it's called uh, Action for Public Housing that held a barbecue. On the same day, there was a march for the Trans Day of Visibility, which I think was very good. Prior to that, there was actually quite a few members who were at a, a Palestine Solidarity Rally. We here in Her Majesty's Glorious Federation do participate in settler colonialism, and we condemn that domestically and abroad that was a, a very needed action and I think the the light should still be kept on that as well and prior to that there were some IWW members who were at was it March 31st yes March 31st nurses strike which was uh, very very good it was the second strike that that union had participated in six weeks I believe so you know very uh, very good work there yeah, definitely. I think that's fantastic. Wasn't there also um, some wobblies at the um, uh, Mardi Gras rally, Keep It in the Streets? Yeah, that's a conversation. Largely, the very corporatized board and the liberal interests that exist on there are very content with keeping uh, Mardi Gras in the Sydney cricket ground. 
I'm thinking to some diminishing returns in terms of public health. But the, mostly the thing is, it was this community-driven event that's now this ticketed sale of a parade, which is um, very disappointing to say the least. And so much of the community have kept it to um, Oxford Street. And I think that like, this very big thing to stick behind, the IWW is ostensibly ACAB. Like, for example, one of the big things is to uh, exclude the, uh, law enforcement from the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras, especially considering the historical origins of that event. And yeah, I'm absolutely sympathetic to those claims and much of the IWW are as well. And so I've participated very strongly in that space as well. Yeah, I saw that. I think it was Pip that put out an open letter regarding their presence in the parade for future. So it'd be interesting to see what happens there. I guess another sort of thing I wanted to ask about, I believe the Wobblies have also supported some anti-fascist fightbacks, especially in regards to all the far-right anti-vaxxer crap that's been going on recently. Obviously, I'm expressing an opinion there, but um, anything that you sort of want to comment on that? Yes, it was very worrying, the trends that were happening in the anti-vax movement. Something I should put forward is should be an issue of workplace safety. If the ruling class is so insistent to force us to work in such precarious conditions as a worldwide pandemic, then I think something as historically like life-saving as vaccination should be a no-brainer. But very unsavory characters have been associated with that, such as Thomas Sewell, who is associated with the National Socialist Network, which should spark some alarm bells as is. Other reactionary commentators, such as the Aussie Cossack, <laughs> not the most subtle name at all. We were absolutely uh, throwing our weight behind those anti-fascist campaigns. And to this day, we're keeping an ear to the ground for a lot of these groups. They were able to round up numbers when people were particularly riled up. And even as recently as the most recent nurses strike rally, there were ears to the ground regarding these reactionary groups who are pushing this anti-vaccination farce of a civil liberties movement. It just occurred to me then I should probably refrain from using air quotes in a audio medium. I can't see you right now and I could definitely hear the audio quotes, so the air quotes in that. So don't, uh, don't worry. Message received. <laughs> yeah, so there's obviously a, like quite a bit of things that the um, uh, IWW Sydney branch have been getting involved in. Is there any like limitations you think at the moment? You did mention that the branch is fairly small, but you know, are there any other limitations that you would see? I think some limitations are kind of include our obscurity. <laughs> the IWW is an institution that is more than a century old now. It's not exactly brings to mind the most vivid of memories unless you're someone who is familiar with workers history. It's not as evocative as say the Communist Party of Australia for example. So I think that is a limitation and I think another limitation is just a lot of us got into this because we're workers and we're unionists who are trying to, in our own context, mobilise our workplaces. This means that not many of us have owed a particularly charitable amount of free time. So yeah, there's always the stuff we're doing in other unions, often part of projects that are related to the IWW. So there's that participation. There's the fact that you have to keep the job. Yep. And then you've got like other stuff that's a consequence of being a, of a general member's branch. Yeah, certainly. That being said, 
why should people get involved with the Sydney branch or their local branch, wherever they may be listening from in the IWW? I would say anyone who thinks that workplace mobilization is where real change can happen. And workplace mobilization has brought regimes to their knees. So I think it's very evident that it does. And you're not exactly keen on waiting for a political party or some NGO to answer your call for you, then I think the IWW and the values that we espouse is a good vector for you to get that aspiration across. We're a union that is not just about getting a fairer wage for a, uh, for a fair day's work. We're about abolishing that wage system. And I don't know about you, but I've been very disappointed with simply negotiating through the Industrial Relations Commission, simply lobbying within the ACTU with being essentially let down time and again by political parties, first and foremost, the ALP, who are almost ironically named at this point. So yeah, I feel that the old adage that direct action gets the goods and that there is nothing that the owning class and the working class have in common, that this is the attitude that should be brought to um, the table when we are fighting for our conditions. And I think these values are the things that will propel workplace organization into the 21st century. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important for anybody who's sort of a left organizer to sort of, it's nice to get involved with a group of comrades who are thinking the same way, even if you don't work in the same industries or if you're from an industry that's not even unionized very well it's a great way to sort of kind of feel like you're not just screaming into a void you can scream into that void with other people as well (laughs) and also actually you know feel like you're getting something done all right so if we had a revolution how would you see that coming about right now um i i know that you're someone who like sort of looks um at the world quite a large picture um, and obviously we're not thinking practically here we're just talking about you know a what-if scenario what would you see happening so if a revolution happened today I actually think the left is in a very weak state in the Anglosphere we are probably in some of the most capitalist times in history right now and in terms of, again, being in the Anglosphere and being in the global north, again, ironically, if you've ever seen a map, we're kind of in the stronghold of this capitalism. So if there was a revolution to happen under these circumstances today, somehow, I actually think it would be a fascist one. And I think people should reflect upon that. We're a lot closer to America than people think. And America demonstrated a year ago, January 6th, that if they had a revolution, Today, it would be a fascist one. I hope that if you hear this and you do have revolutionary aspirations, I hope that does kind of um, scare you a bit because that's the sort of work that needs to get done. I think we need to work in terms of cross-organizational solidarity. We need to work in terms of industrial organizing within those workplaces because when you're talking about a revolution, we're not just talking about a very, very, very big street march where we walk up to parliament and kick everyone out. We're talking about, apart from like the more violent aspects of a revolution, we're talking about the control of supply lines and infrastructural points. So yeah, that would be uh, my more pessimistic view. But um, pessimists are always happier because they're seldom disappointed. So um, just to really challenge your pessimism, imagine if the left was stronger and the left managed to sort of have a, a greater sway and we had a left revolution. What do you think that might look like? 
I'm not sure. Like we have all have an, uh, these uh, dreams of what it would be for all the workers to seize the Commonwealth, to uh, dissolve Her Majesty's Federation, to uh, return the land to the First Nations. But the truth is that no matter how much you laugh on about material conditions, you're not going to know what the revolution will be. It'll certainly not be perfect. There'll be like awful, awful things that happen there. But generally, if I'm thinking of like what a successful workers' revolution would be, it would be people from their workplaces saying, no, we work on our own terms. We don't work on our owner's terms by virtue of capital and uh, legal recognition. And I think that is kind of what I envision. People can't move military supplies if the train workers do not move that for them. People cannot feed soldiers if the farmers and the transport workers do not ship the food to them. You know, the lights cannot turn on if the people who run the electricity grid say otherwise. So in terms of like a successful workers' revolution, that's kind of like how I view things. Because... To be fair, the ruling class will outdone us, but we have more power just by the sheer reliance that their economy has on our labor. Great. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. Is there anything else that you sort of want to add to this? Absolutely. Um, If you're a worker right now, if you put your labor into something and you don't get your fair share out of it, I absolutely encourage each and every one of you to join a union. If you're joined a union and you don't think they do much, get involved, become a delegate. I don't don't know, like uh, you can contact an organiser and get that union doing stuff. Have the branch meetings, move resolutions, get it going. Because a lot of the times, and it's true, a lot of these uh, more established bourgeois trade unions love to negotiate. They are very um, passive creatures, really. But what a union is truly, what its strength is, is that each and every member is that union. So if your union isn't doing anything, then what will you do about it? My father's Irish and my mom's Filipino. So I had a terminally Catholic upbringing and I was brought up with the quote of St. Mary McKillop, which was, you shouldn't see a need without doing something about it. And I absolutely uh, agree with that wholesale. So yeah, if you're in a workplace right now, get involved with your union. Hell yeah. And is there anything that um, we'd like to also tie off with a little bit of promoting direct action? If you can find it, have a read. People are trying. Yes, absolutely. Actually, if people want to um, have a quiz of um, our uh, publication, Direct Action, uh, I think the most reliable way right now is to find at least our branches um, Facebook page, Sydney Wobblies. Just Facebook that in. I'm pretty sure we're the only ones called Sydney Wobblies. And we'll post, we post like actions that we're taking, actions that we're supporting, actions that we're doing, and stuff like the projects we've got. And one of them is the paper Direct Action. I believe there is a link to the PDF on there on the wall now uh, already. Uh, like the page, keep following it and uh, see what we're up to. I hope to see you out in those streets if you do. Yeah, and also don't forget to look out for um, the podcast, What's That Skip? And when that comes out, Facebook group, um, you can also join meetings um, if you'd like to suss out the branch and get more involved as well. Yes, absolutely. So we do have fortnightly meetings that are on Saturdays, usually at 1600. I believe the next one will be on, hang on, let me let me do some maths in my brain for a bit. 
it will be on the 23rd. So yeah, there should be a link to that on the page as well. For now, it's been electronic. So there'll be a link at that events page, but we do hope to start uh, in-person meetings as well. Awesome. Thanks for that, Skip. Definitely check out the Sydney Wobblies page on Facebook. And on that note, we're going to close the episode with a traditional IWW song covered by a notable Wobbly, Tom Morello and the Night Watchman. Please enjoy. Solidarity forever. Through the workers' blood shall run There can be no greater power anywhere beneath the sun Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one But the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity forever For the union makes us strong It is Endless miles of railroad laid Now we stand outcast and starving It's the wonders we have made But the union makes us strong the old. 